Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com slash podcast. All right, let's get started. We all talk about developer relations, but have we forgotten about DevOps? In this podcast, I talk to Marino Widje about operator relations and how that focus has been central to the success of the Kubernetes community and its high impact when it comes to developer relations. Marino, hey, it is cool to have you here today on the Fireside with Box Gig podcast. And you are dressed for this podcast, I see Kubernetes t-shirt for the win. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. Uh, okay, so I'm going to, well, I don't even know where to start with you because you... <laughs> Do you sleep? I do. <laughs> you, do we, we uh, you do a bunch of stuff. So, okay, let, well, let's do the really easy question first. Uh, who do you work for and what do they do? And how does that fit into DevRel? Absolutely. So I work for a company called Solo.io as a developer advocate. And they're a company that focuses in on API management and application networking, mostly in the cloud native and Kubernetes ecosystem. So to simplify, you run a bunch of containers and they all need some really fancy networking. That's where Solo comes in. And what I do is really help talk about that message throughout communities and at conferences. But to pair that with uh, how that inter how that's interactive or how that works with developers, for example, developers write code. They write these microservices. They're the ones that create them. And we want to remove that responsibility and onus of them having to manage the logic behind how their applications run and just yeah. let them do their thing. So where, where does the API part come in? So a long time ago, when Solo first launched, they got into the management of APIs. They got into that business of managing APIs in the sense of they'll present you with an API gateway and you'll be able to control all of your APIs wherever they exist, whatever they might come in the flavor of. Now, over the years, that API pattern moved directly towards microservices because Kubernetes started becoming a thing. And so through that initial launch of an API gateway solution, they gravitated towards a service mesh, which is a bunch of API gateways all over the place. Gotcha. And so, yeah, they, they took the same foundation of, of what they call, or what they at that time called Glue Edge and turned this into something called Glue Gateway. And that just fits the whole application networking story and paradigm. Yeah, it sounds like I could have used you guys a couple of years ago. Right? Uh, <laughs> since I built pre-COVID, had, oh, I don't know, 100 microservices on Kubernetes and um, on Google Cloud. And yeah, a lot of inter-service comms, uh, our own gateway, all built by hand. Uh, it was fun. <laughs> That's definitely the way things were before Solo came along. So yeah, did, did taking the job in Solo drive your interest in Kubernetes and running Kubernetes communities and doing open source, or did that come prior to the job? So a bit of that came from Solo, and some of that came from before. the The previous role that I was in, I was actually at a company called VMware. I'm sure, you've you've heard of oh, them. Yeah, yeah. Who are they? yeah it's welcome. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, but they they at the time when I was working there, they had gotten into the business of containerization. Actually, they already had a business. They acquired 
a sister company that they had spun out a long time ago called Pivotal. I brought it in-house and basically wanted to complete their portfolio by offering up container services. And this whole notion of you can achieve DevSecOps. Yeah. Yeah. While while there, you know, it was great to immerse myself in what they were doing in Kubernetes, not only in the enterprise space, but also in the ecosystem of open source. And at that time, I started to realize, oh my gosh, there's all these amazing open source players. Solo happened to be one of them. And uh, there's more to that story, but it just so happened that uh, they were very well aligned to you know my career in terms of what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. So I joined them. I didn't join them as a field engineer, uh, sorry, as a developer advocate though. I joined them initially as a field engineer. And this is where the community part came in. Yeah. Solo wanted to really enhance their community. They wanted to have more conversations, more direct conversations that are authentic. And they weren't actively doing that yet. So I decided to champion a lot of that effort and I became their first developer advocate that took on a lot of the community work to engage with folks at you know at conferences that participate in these uh, communities and just to be able to answer their questions and not you know come across as someone that sells them. Hey, I'll educate you, I'll answer your questions. If you decide that there's something that aligns with your problems, well, you know you know who to call. Okay, so there's something I want to zero in on here. Um, because this kind of goes to the heart of some of the challenges developer advocates have these days with uh, management. <laughs> you know, uh, so you said Solo decided they they wanted to improve their community engagement, but who specifically in the leadership team? Where did that come from? So I, I've worked in companies, and I know companies where it has literally come from the CEO because they just know intuitively this is going to work for us. Um, and then other companies where that's been driven by the investors because the investors know that it works. Um, and other companies maybe where it's come in at a lower level and it's happened organically. Um, so how did it happen in Solo? What, was it a direct leadership initiative from the highest levels or was it a calculated move? So initially it, was, it wasn't even probably top of radar. I think they yeah. had it in there their back burner of something to address. And I was the one that said, look, let's let's actually kick this off. Uh, you can experiment with me. I'll be the first. Uh, and my CTO, as well as the CEO, was completely on board with it because I felt they felt that they needed to try something a little bit different outside of their regular marketing campaigns and their the process that they take for sales and how long those sales cycles could be. So they experimented with me. And because of the things that I've tried, uh, whatever I've executed on, they grew the team. And now we're a team of three and we're able to get out okay. globally. Okay. Yeah. See, you infected the organization with developer <laughs> advertising. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of like the um, the idea was there, but then you actually provided the execution. Catalyst. I'm the catalyst. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that generates another question, right? which is uh, clearly at that point in time, developers, they fit it into the sales process somewhere, but it, maybe, it was, maybe it wasn't that well-defined. So, I mean, for Solo, is it the case that you sell to developers and then they bring you to senior management of your customers, or do you have a more traditional sales set up where you're selling to senior management and the developers say, yeah, you're nay. 
I think it's a combination of both. And that's all entirely hinged on Solo's growth, right? There was an inflection point where they realized having more long-term relationships with enterprise execs is going to you know, keep growing the business. It's going to sustain the business overall. But the conversations still need to be had with the engineers, the ones that are actually making the technical decisions around how an application is deployed and built and supported and scaled, et cetera. So developers initially was the, was the original audience. And that's primarily because of the way they consumed and built their APIs. Now, there's still a little bit of that, but the focus now is more around platform teams, teams that focus in on managing Kubernetes and associated orchestrated systems, but also the observability, the networking, the the identity and authorization, uh, the pieces around automation, all of that falls under used to fall under so many different buckets, but now falls under the platform teams. And so Solo's motion is let's work with the platform teams and tie this all under a single pane, make this easier for them to consume. And so in turn, they can give their developers a platform to start consuming various services inside of a mesh or inside of a, a network, a global network. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So if you were in VMware, and I'm guessing that was the, I'm just guessing around, just looking at the time that you were there, you must have had a window seat to Docker emerging. Getting yes, popular. Uh, exactly. What was that like? What did you think of it at the time? I mean, when you saw it first, were you like, oh my God, or were you like, eh, it's just, 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 just another jail, go on, BSC jails, whatever, right? You know, back in 2017, the the whole movement of containerization was really starting to take off, but VMware was in this awkward place, right? And I was along with them in that in that awkward place where they still had this audience of infrastructure builders that they sold to and they worked with. And to allow them to allow their developers to leverage containers, they had their own little answer, which was vSphere integrated containers. At the same time, if something elaborate was, was much needed, well, oh, by the way, we've got a company called Pivotal over there that can help you with that. So... For a while, it it kind of was a situation where you you had conversations with developers, and they were either using Docker, or you were trying to convince them to use our vSphere integrated container solution, which didn't scale well. And then you had Kubernetes at the side that started brewing. So VMware decided to pivot a little bit, and they built a, an internal organization that focused primarily on Kubernetes. It's a very small organization. And then they decided, okay, let's acquire a company called Heptio. Heptio was their first take at, let's offer up Kubernetes through our ecosystem, through our builds and support it and lifecycle it, et cetera. But they couldn't stop there because as we know it, it's not, the story doesn't stop with just Kubernetes. You need an observability platform on top. You need a way to lifecycle it. You need a way to check for vulnerabilities. So many different things. And so this is where, you know, they really doubled down and realized, okay, Docker is not going to massively succeed at the orchestration game because we have to offer up a platform for a platform. They're only offering up a platform. So when you when you think about that, a platform for developers, but a but we're offering up a platform for both developers and operators that's going to be widely attractive to the market. And so you see companies like Google, AWS, uh, Microsoft, all doing the same thing as well. I mean, they offer their own platform and they give you a platform on top of that as well. 
And it comes down to the experience of it. So you have a bunch of organizations highly leveraging Docker, trying to productionize it, take it to production. Uh, that's not entirely possible. That's not to say Docker can't do it or the technologies in Docker can't do it. But it's to say that there are better systems that have won that do it so much better. Kubernetes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's a narrative in my head that I want to sense check with you, right? Uh, and then you made a very uh, insightful comment that I'll come back to, uh, which sort of informs maybe a bit more perspective. Uh, I mean, it looks like what was done with Docker was a classic example of using developer relations to gain early adoption, right? Something was packaged up so that it was friendly for developers. In the same way that Stripe packaged up payment APIs. And then you get this massive adoption. Um, and you would think, based on the back of that, that uh, Docker or Docker Swarm is just going to win because, hey, it's super friendly for developers. Uh, and even now, I would say Docker is still friendlier than Kubernetes for developers, right? <laughs> I don't think anyone would argue with too yeah. much, right? You're, you're correct, yeah. So, you know, I, I would have been making bets on Docker Swarm back in the day. Um, then, sort of out of nowhere, Kubernetes comes along. And it turns out that, yeah, we kind of have to use Kubernetes to actually deploy this stuff. Uh, and yet, Docker still seems friendlier to developers. So it was always a bit mysterious in my head. But you just said, the thing Kubernetes did was worried about operator relations, which is the other part of the puzzle. So that kind of explains a lot. I was confused about it, right, when it happened at the time. And I mean, I didn't mind Kubernetes. I don't, hey, it's pretty cool. Uh, but I never understood why it won. So was it operator relations? Can I can I use that term? Is that a term? That's a, that's an interesting term, and the way you bring it up is is overall fascinating because that is just it. Docker wasn't built for the operators in mind; yeah. it was built for developers in mind to just run apps at speed. But when it came down to taking things to production, making things a little bit more enterprisey, well, Kubernetes won. Not only because of the fact that it was massively adopted, but you start looking at the organizations behind it that massively contribute to the project. Google, IBM, VMware, Red Hat, um, and a whole bunch of other companies out there, AWS even, they jump in and they're effectively contributing to the project, but influencing the direction to make it more enterprise-like. So who, who gravitates towards this? The execs. They see something very enterprise-like, backed by all of these massive vendors. Well, here we go. Let's go down that path. And then Docker is off to the side, not really heavily backed as much as Kubernetes is, but still does the job. I mean, they got a lot of they got a lot of VC money, right? They've right. got money. They've got money. Yeah. But it comes down to the the adoption, right, and the amount of folks that have much more consumed Kubernetes, but also made it much more developer friendly. So when you take that approach, now you've got a massive community behind it, not only using it and consuming it, but building it on top of it, expanding the ecosystem, pointing out the flaws, 
uh, and the fallacies of the technology to make sure that the next iteration becomes better. Because the next iteration is not going to be Kubernetes. It's going to be something else. We just don't know what it is yet. Yeah, we'll come back in 10 years. I'm I'm, I'm doing so We're still learning Kubernetes. Uh, let's talk about observability, because uh, if you don't know how important it is, Right. If you, if you're, if you, I don't know, if you've been on the sort of front end side of things and your developer relations work has focused on more, more that end of the developer world, you might understand how that term is kind of critical, uh, to running large systems. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Marino, that's kind of a big ask, but maybe, maybe just take it from the top and why it matters so much. So. Observability is a very, very critical theme that it's, it's just spanned many, many decades. I think the way we've decided to build apps has garnered a, a much larger need for observability at the most micro level possible. And it really comes down to the performance, the availability, the capability of an application and the results after the fact, like the outputs that we see. So let's take, for example, I want to build a simple web application that, you know, you, you throw in a few characters and it's going to auto-generate a password for you. It's just going to have those three extra characters for you. Now, the things you don't know about what that app is doing behind the scenes is how it's calculating or randomly generating that password for you. Uh, maybe the developer knows and has you know, pulled an algorithm from outside. Now, there's a few key problems here. So because that developer pulled an algorithm from the outside world or from some you know, public repository, they don't know any sort of known vulnerabilities that might exist in that code base. And so they might be using it unknowingly. So maybe those passwords, because they're not salted or hashed in some way, are now actually being sent somewhere else. And we just don't know about it. We, we haven't paid attention to that. So that's another observability point. We're not knowing. We don't have the insights to know where this data might be exfiltrated to. So there's a there's a hand-in-hand combination here. Security goes with observability. But then it doesn't stop there. What happens when our app breaks, when it stops responding? We don't have the true picture of why. We can't tell why. We can't understand why because there was no observability tool to discern what could be going wrong. There could be outside log systems that we can tap into, but if we haven't instrumented it correctly, we're not going to be able to sift through that data, that log data, and truly know what's going on. It take a while, but it's possible. It's just, it's going to take a long time. So observability becomes extremely key, not only in cloud native, but just any operating environment that you run in, because you're you're using it to be able to be preventative, to know how things can go wrong, when it can go wrong, and be proactive about it, but also to gain insights and feedback as to how you can improve upon something. So let's just say, you know, you have this one application that is just receiving so many requests that it's always hitting 100% CPU utilization on the back end. And because of that, requests cannot be fulfilled in a timely manner. So there's latency, there's a delay, the user experience becomes poor. So what do you do? Do you scale it? But if if you want to scale it, how do you know that you need to scale it? So you have to have an observability system behind the scenes to be able to tell you and alert you that, hey, you're starting to hit that CPU threshold, it's time to auto scale. Uh, the, the issues might not be just there, right? But the things that we wanna be looking for 
is latency, any sort of errors towards our requests, all the traffic that's coming in and all the saturation, LETS, that's the acronym. The four golden signals is really the key to observability. And that's kind of where Docker fell down, right? They didn't, they should have put those that, those VC dollars into observability maybe. Um, uh, it's an awesome tool, right? But uh, I mean, I, I've suffered that and that's eventually why I ended, I ended up using Kubernetes in the end, right? Um, yes, okay. So the other interesting question I had for you, given your background, um, is how, you, I mean, you ended up in sort of, you were working initially pretty straight-laced and big enterprises, operations, engineering, that type of stuff. How do you end up running communities, Kubernetes communities and open source communities and changing the yeah. DNA of a company to be <laughs> to actually have yeah, for relations, right? When I guess you started out your career, you know, with Cat5 cables and moving racks around the place that sort of stuff, replacing fans. <laughs> That's exactly, you know what, I'm glad you bring this up because it's all cumulative. It's, you know, it's additive, it's just constant growth and you build upon everything that you've uh, you've developed in terms of experience. So let's, let's talk about the enterprise for a second. The enterprise is a safe space for a lot of people to really grow, but not feel the pressures of like, oh my gosh, we have to do this now, we have to do that now of a startup, right? So in those kinds of organizations, there are a lot of programs that are established to help you grow individually, to help you grow technically, to help you grow professionally in a lot of different ways. Uh, and also a lot of these organizations at the same time have the capital to be able to establish new programs. So they'll follow the trends and they'll see it, you know, the fact that, hey, there's developer relations as an activity, as an organization, as a function that we probably need to take on. Let's experiment. We, we have the money. We can do it. So you have a team that focuses in on a community that the, that's already been established. In fact, the Java community has been established for a very, very long time. There are plenty of advocates that exist, and it all kind of started with them when you think about it. So yeah. VMware, as an, org, as an example, plays on that. They take on a little bit of the persona of what Pivotal did for that community, and they just execute at scale. So meanwhile, I'm here at the side, and I see that, and I'm like, okay, you know, I like this, but I don't want to see myself doing this at VMware. Let's go try something elsewhere outside. And so going to the startup side of things, you have a lot of flexibility, a lot of agility, momentum. You can do a lot of different things here. Today, I decided at the end of the day, I don't want to work in advocacy more anymore. And I you know, want to move back in the field. I think that can happen within a couple of weeks uh, pretty easily. But the idea is that when you look at a massive organization, like VMware, they can offer up all the necessary foundation you need to go succeed elsewhere. And that's pretty much why, you know, it was perfect to work there for a while, learn all the things, get immersed into Kubernetes, and then find my path elsewhere, you know, come to a startup. And I continually found my path here. But building those communities is like, okay, I have this opportunity to share my story. And maybe through sharing my story, there will be 20 to 30% of those folks that can heavily relate to what I'm talking about uh, is relatable in their day job and they're looking for a way to transform. So let's let's attach ourselves to that story and we'll keep watching to see what this guy does. Well, you know, a year and a half later in the, the advocacy role and people still ask for this stuff. 
they want to know more about some of the basics of networking because they've never really understood it. You know, you show up with Kubernetes cluster and everything works, but how does a packet move around? And the fact that they want more and more of this means that what I've been doing has been effective. So you grow a community organically by focusing in on a niche area that no one really wants to talk about. They might think it's boring or it's, you know, they don't have to care about it, but actually people have to care about it because it's the fabric that ties us all together. Yeah. So by starting in, by starting an enterprise, it kind of gave you the personal space to build the skill sets. Uh, it's a question people often ask, right? When you, should you start your career in a startup or should you start in a big company? Um, we've actually, we, 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 we took completely opposite pathways into this, <laughs> into this game, right? Um, and I, I often think, well, maybe I should have done the enterprise thing. <laughs> uh, like, you know, life might be, might be a little bit calmer. Um, speaking of enterprises, so what I think you said is a lot of them are seeing that developer relations is now a standardized activity, something they need to do. And they have budgets, so they set up a developer relations team. I don't know, do they set up an office? Do they put it under CTO, CMO. Um, but my concern is, is that just ticking a box? Because the most effective uses of developer relations, the times that I've seen it really move the needle is when there's endorsement and support right from the top of the organization, when it's seen as, okay, it may not be seen as critical to sales, but it, it's seen as important to close the deal because you get the constituency of developers over the line. Um, and also for recruiting because it brings people in, gets people excited about the organization. So I'd have a concern that an enterprise it would be just it would just be taking another box and there's no there there. So do you think I do you think that's what's going to happen or do you think the value of relations will ultimately trump that. I think for large organizations, they're going to look at that developer relations or and look for some value. They're going to look for impact. They're trying something and they have been trying for a while. Um, and I'll call on a few examples of successful developer advocacy and relations programs. AWS has one that's been working phenomenally for them. Red Hat has had a developer relations program for a very, very long time. And, uh, and it continues to thrive. Uh, but you have to think about why you would want to start a developer advocate or a developer relations program. You want to provide some outreach. You want to relate to these developers or practitioners, and you want to enhance your community. There is the subtle of subtlety of, I want to turn some of this into actual sales. But the reality is that advocacy, that relationship is more about building the top of funnel through that community building. So you have this top of funnel, we're not going to actively take and cherry pick from that funnel and turn that into an actual deal or opportunity. That funnel is there for us to nurture, educate, continue to engage with. And it becomes the responsibility of turning those DevRel qualified leads, what I consider top of funnel, into marketing qualified leads, into sales qualified leads, and then turn them into actual opportunities. But we stop at that level where the funnel is developed. 
right? And it's the organic funnel, not the, hey, I'm going to scan your badge at a conference. More like that, hey, I've developed a Slack channel and I now have 100 users. Last month, I only had 50. The month before, I had five. And now I have organic users that care about this. And that's the top of funnel where you have to look at other teams to go and execute on if they decide to. Maybe some of these don't ever convert. And that's okay, too. It's not an overnight thing. I think that developer relations, developer advocacy is is a very long game. So leadership teams need to sit there and, and realize this. So it goes all the way to the top. If they're not sponsoring it, if they're not providing enough time for an advocacy or a relations program to properly execute, it's not like a six-month thing. We're talking about a year plus then you're not going to see the results, the longer term results. And I have clear cut examples of things I've done, you know, well over a year ago that are only now starting to be fruitful. Right. Yes. Yeah. And and that's a common experience in developer relations, right? Easily, easily takes 18 months, two years, three years for things to really germinate, Uh, which is why we have so much angst about measurement, (laughs) quarterly measurement, because... It's so hard to demonstrate value. Uh, Rita, can I, can I ask you a controversial question? Absolutely. So, um, we know the value of open source, right? And Kubernetes has really, really uh, benefited from its, its really friendly attitude to open source and support by a lot of the, the community members, corporate and, and individual people. Um, do you think Terraform made a mistake? What do you think is going to happen? You don't have to answer. <laughs> you know, I, I am I'm very neutral about this yeah. because there there's two sides to that conversation. There's a business that needs to really make money, uh, and then there are consumers that have used this technology for a very long time and are just realizing the effects of a company deciding, hey, we need to make more money off of this. So. In the grand scheme of things, what I end up seeing is, okay, this will continue to happen. Terraform and HashiCorp will continue to do their thing. OpenTF or OpenTerraform, that initiative that was struck up or that was forked over uh, right after this announcement, is probably going to continue to be a thing. Because there's a lot of consumers and there are a lot of companies out there that have backed themselves into using Terraform as part of their larger offering. So none of that's going away. I mean, the experience doesn't really truly change. I think the legalities of it become more apparent as to how you use, sell, consume the software. And I'm, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know the real you know legalities behind what could go wrong here. What I do see, though, is that if HashiCorp was able to pull something like this and make a move like so, I'm certain that there are other companies out there that have leverage the community to develop their open source software that can easily do the same thing. Um, it's it will really come down to a business decision, right? Yeah. And, and you can you can sympathize with them, right? Because uh you put all this effort into the community and building this building the software and then other organizations can just deploy it. I mean, you know, but look at Elasticsearch, right? Right. Uh so you could certainly sympathize with it. Um do we need to think collectively about slightly different approach? I know you have people who are a very pure idea of what open source should be. And I'm not even talking about the GPL side of things. I'm, I'm just talking about open source in general, even if it's MIT or BSD or whatever. Um, 
but maybe there's another middle ground between pure commercial and traditional full open source. Maybe we maybe we collectively need to get more sophisticated about this because it's nice to have open source communities, but our bread and butter, right? Who pays for the flights to the conferences? <laughs> who plays who pays for the laptops? Uh who plays for the who pays for the time to to write open source? Uh, yeah, it's I think, it's, I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Um, I don't know the answer. I don't know. I don't know the answer either, to be honest. Uh, but it can go in one of two directions. We could continually go on the same path and have outside contributors that aren't compensated. So we're going to have to fight to make sure that they're compensated because they're not associated with any organization. They're doing free work. We have to find a way to pool funds to make sure that they're paid for. Uh, but on the other hand, this could go a different direction and everyone can lock up everything. Everything has to be licensed. There could be no more open source. There won't be you know, flexibility in the way we do things. And there will only be a single way to do everything. And we don't want that. We want to be able to foster the innovation and collaboration. So it'll never go down that path. That middle ground, though, what you're describing, I think the collective minds of the folks that not only drive cloud native, but outside and other open source areas need to really come together and sit down and establish, like, how do we prevent another HashiCorp from happening? And that's not, it's not a knock against HashiCorp either, but how do we prevent this so it doesn't have a, a massive, profound radiating impact on both the community and the way open source is consumed? There are always uh, difficult, narrow pathways to, to, <laughs> to navigate with this stuff. Um, I mean, I've, I've certainly had interesting discussions with investors and even clients over the years, um, about, I mean, you know, the classic, the, the classic DevRel one, when you're, when you're working with a client, uh, especially when they're not really software aware is, yeah, your SDK has to be open source, kind of has to be on GitHub. I'm not open sourcing my software. It's like, yeah, you gotta have to make your SDK open source. <laughs> uh, Leads to some, it leads to some interesting conversations. Uh, okay, uh, I think I think let's wrap that up. Um, awesome, a, a lot of really interesting insights, and um, I really like this idea of Kubernetes actually focused on operator relations. Uh, that kind of answers a question I've been I've never really understood. I'm not. I mean, I'm I'm a developer, right? I've Mm -hmm. I've, I've compiled Apache and installed it and done all that sort of stuff, but I've never, I've never been the guy that gets called at four a.m. on a Sunday morning. Um, yeah, yeah, it kind of explains a lot. Marina, thank you so much. This has been for me anyway, slightly revelatory. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Richard. Honestly, it's it's been a pleasure to talk about some of this stuff and talk about. What's been going on and transpiring in the ecosystem? I mean, at the end of the day, things are are pretty much the same. Things throughout the decades will stay the same. It's just how we look at things and how we perceive it and the optics behind it uh, is really, you know, Kubernetes today. Like you said, 10 years, we'll have this conversation. It'll be something else doing the exact same thing that we've been trying to, you know, attain. Um, but no, I really appreciate you having this conversation with me, Richard. Awesome. Take care. Good luck. Thank you so much. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at 
voxgate.com slash podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgate.com slash newsletter or follow our Twitter at Voxgate. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.